0: We ended our last episode in September of 1812, just before Georgia militia colonel Daniel Noonan prepared to lead an attack on the Seminole Indian settlement called Payne's Town in the fertile Alachua region of north central Florida. Noonan sought retribution against the Seminole for, well, we're not clear precisely why. Was it because the Seminole backed the Spanish government in St. Augustine rather than maintain neutrality against the illegal patriot invasion? Was it because the Georgia militia felt humiliated from an attack by black militia and black maroon Seminoles? Although the attackers did don Indian war paint, the Alachua Seminoles were not part of or behind the attack. Maybe they just thought, that as a Spanish ally, the Seminoles would be an easy mark to whom they could teach a lesson since they could not get inside the Spanish-held garrison at the Castillo de San Marcos. It is not as if a persuasive justification was needed. The Patriots were mostly land-hungry Georgians posing as Floridians who were disgruntled with Spanish rule. They saw an imagined reason or no reason at all to stoke an uprising so they could declare a republic and obtain American recognition for evicting the Spanish. Then they would accrue the spoils. The Alachua Band of Seminole Indians resided on a main trading route close to St. Augustine and who possibly, the patriots weren't sure, had wealth to pillage and plunder. Thus did events bring Georgians and by extension Americans as a whole into their first large-scale encounter with the feisty Alachua Seminole Indians. Although Noonan's raid itself was ill-fated, it almost became Noonan's massacre with his force wiped out, it did expose the Georgians to the Seminoles' rich and fertile grazing and farming land. This first contact discovery would, pardon the expression, plant the seed for a return later to take possession of this territory with or without Seminole consent. The raid became a pivotal and perhaps inaugural battle that ushered in a half century of contention and conflict between the United States and the many bands and tribes comprising the Seminole Indians of Florida. These wars ultimately left the Seminole battered severely, partially removed to Oklahoma, but in the end, unconquered in Florida when it was all said and done. This episode picks up as Noonan departs to find, fix, and destroy the Seminole and win some booty for his troops in the process. With us again to explain it all is Dr. James Cusick. As we have mentioned, Dr. Cusick wrote about this in the other War of 1812, the Patriot War and the American invasion of Spanish East Florida. Dr. Jim Cusick, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick. We left off with an impending military operation against the Seminole. Please give us a recap of where we are and who's in charge of it. Okay, well I think for
1: context, we'll just say that this happens in 1812. And at that time, Florida is a Spanish colony, but it is under American military occupation. And we're not gonna go into why there was an American military occupation. The important thing is that American forces were pitted against Spanish forces. And the Seminole of the Alachua area decided to come in on the side of the Spanish. So what we're going to talk about is one of the major engagements of this combat. And also, it's the first time that Seminole warriors go up against American forces in a major way. It's the very first time. And to history, it's usually known as Noonan's Raid or Noonan's Battle.
0: Who was Colonel Daniel Noonan, and what was he attempting to do with his march to Paints Colonel
1: Daniel Noonan was, uh, by birth, from North Carolina, attended University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, relocated to Georgia, became Adjutant General of Georgia. And at this time, in late September of 1812, uh, he was in command of the Georgia Volunteers, which was a contingent of Georgia militia, about 250 men, who had been brought down into Florida to support American forces there. Noonan became convinced that the American position in Florida would be untenable as long as the Seminole continued to be in the field helping Spanish forces. And he decided to make a strike against the main town of the Seminoles over in what's today Alachua County. south to the word, the University of Florida is quite near to McManope. So he put this plan to his volunteers, and about half the men agreed to go with him. Uh, They were militia, so for many of them, their terms of service were up. Quite a few of them did not like the idea of trying to hit the Seminole in their home territory. They had come to realize that the Seminole were a formidable opponent. But this didn't deter Noonan. He decided to proceed with about 117 men. And in late September of 1812, he crossed the St. John's River at Fort Piccolata, and he proceeded west towards the Alachua Territory.
0: He never reached Paynestown. What happened?
1: Well, he made very good progress. In three days of March, he and his 117 men were getting close to where Paynestown was. That was the principal town of the area, and it was named after the seminal headman, the seminal chief. Pain or King Payne. They were approaching it from the northeast. Basically, on modern geography, they were marching down along the eastern shore of what today is called Lake Noonan. And as they got close to the town, quite by coincidence, there was a seminal raiding party which was setting out in the other direction. And it was led by Payne, who was in his late 70s or 80s at that time, and it was composed of about 80 warriors. And so the two groups literally kind of bump into each other unexpectedly. They had about the same number of men, because when Noonan prepared to engage in battle, he sent some of his men to the right, which would have been towards the lake, and they got round behind some sort of depression or sinkhole that blocked their advance and that kind of took them out of the engagement at least initially. So it was about 80 men on one side versus 80 men on the other side. The Seminole pulled back because they didn't even have their guns loaded. They had not expected to encounter a hostile force so close to their town. So they dropped back and prepared their guns, and both sides took cover in the terrain and behind the trees, began a long shooting volley that went on and on and on for two and a half hours, where they were basically you know, concealing themselves or keeping undercover, but firing at the other side.
0: The battle, dubbed historically as Noonan's raid, was inconclusive, although both sides suffered casualties. Why was Noonan's force at a disadvantage, though?
1: After this first engagement of two and a half hours, both sides were beginning to run low on their ammunition. They had to begin to conserve power. For about five hours, there was a ceasefire. Noonan used that time to send mounted men, couriers, back east to get help. And he also had his men build a breastwork so that they would have protection. At the same time, there were reinforcements coming to the Seminole side. The end of five hours instead of 80 warriors, the Seminole had 250. They outnumbered Noonan's men by more than two to one, and of course the new warriors, the warriors who had arrived, also came with supplies of gunpowder. Noonan was pinned down. He. Um, Uh, He couldn't retreat, at least not easily, and so his option was to wait on his couriers and hold out until he could receive reinforcements. For seven days, his men were trapped in this breastwork that they had built, repelling fire from the Seminole. The Seminole didn't attempt an overwhelming assault, but they were keeping up kind of a steady volley of fires. Again, they were still trying to conserve ammunition, and Noonan was trying to conserve ammunition. The big factor for Noonan was he was running out of food, and over the course of seven days, they had to kill the horses and eat the horses. No help came. There was no sign of any returning couriers. He was forced, basically, to retreat and fight a rearguard action again, superior military force, as he tried to make his way back to the St. John's River. The first day, I think they only made it eight miles before the exchange of fire became so heated that they had to stop and build another redoubt and take shelter behind it. So this was the circumstances that he was in. He was 70 miles from safety. He was on foot. He was low on ammunition. His men were low on ammunition. They were low on food. And they had... To protect themselves from twice as many Seminole warriors, who were mobile and could move about around. In the middle of all this, this uh, this you know extended into early October. Apparently, a late hurricane season storm came up. I don't know if it was a hurricane or a northeaster, but it blew through the area. Severe winds, the winds were snapping the pine trees in half, forced both sides to take shelter. And so, for another five or six days. Noonan had to essentially fight his way backwards towards the St. John's River before he finally ran into a relief party um, who could defend him and tend to his wounded. He was three days going into the raid to get to Paint Town, and he was two weeks extricating himself back out from it again.
0: Hunkered down behind Breastworks, low on ammunition, outnumbered, sounds a little bit like what Major Dade's command faced. What are the similarities, what are the differences, and how close did Daniel Noonan come to emulating Dade's fate two decades later?
1: Well, it was very similar. The major difference and the most important difference was that the ambush of Major Dade by the Seminole was a plan that had been worked out in advance. You know, They planned that, that ambush. This was an accidental engagement. Neither side. Had expected to encounter the other and I think probably what Dave Noonan was that the Seminoles had expended a lot of ammunition in the original engagement and they had to be careful with their ammunition so they could keep up a sporadic fire on him but they uh, they couldn't really launch an assault and uh, and of course they you know every you know every every day he was getting closer to the American lines and they were getting further away from their home territory and that that made have influenced things as well. But I can tell you that when he finally made it back to uh, the St. John's River, he emphasized the fact that they had inflicted a lot of casualties uh, on the Seminole, and um, that he felt they, that they, he, could, he could claim a victory by the fact that he had gotten that for and gotten back out. Um, but the other military commanders, American military commanders in Florida, didn't see it that way. And neither did the governor of Georgia, who said that he thought Noonan had been incredibly lucky to get out of that situation and to bring his men out of that situation alive. However, it did make Noonan famous. He was, he was already well known in Georgia, and this made him, uh, this made him a, a folk hero in Georgia. And there were immediately, immediate calls to avenge him basically. Even the governor of Georgia, David Mitchell, who generally had not been in favor of extending hostilities in Florida, even he felt that the situation that Noonan endured called for some type of retaliatory strike.
0: Ironically, this was a retaliatory strike in the first place.
1: Now they needed a retaliatory strike for the retaliatory strike. Yeah. And I'll just say again that in terms of larger history, I think the most significant thing about this was prior to this, there had never been kind of a hitched engagement like this between any group of the Seminole and American forces. There were raids, and ambushes, and very small, you know, kind of skirmish-type things. But but this was this was really a major engagement. I think one of the ways it affected the future of the Seminole is that it put them very much on the conscience made, you know, of settlers and people, residents in Georgia. It kind of heightened Georgians' awareness of the Seminoles, and it also immediately left Georgians with the, the conviction that the Seminoles were going to be enemies. Very much colored the relationships that were going to exist after that, and that
0: probably had long-term repercussions. The Patriot War became an Indian war as well, with the kind of anger usually associated with Indian wars. What happened next? Uh, yeah, the Patriot
1: War was really the local name for this American occupation. But what had started initially as kind of filibuster, to some extent a, a kind of revolt against Spanish rule, and then as a, an American military incursion, it, it kept snowballing. Kept getting the engagements kept getting bigger and bigger and the ramifications of the military occupation began to involve more and more and more people, or at least affect more and more and more people. So the net effect or the ultimate effect of, uh, of Noonan's raid and of the repulse of Noonan's raid was that American troops put together a plan to go back into the Alachua territory and to go back in strength and to simply put an end to any seminal military involved from that point on. And it did take months planning to, to actually put that together. There were debates among military officers on the American side at that time as to whether they even really wanted to go ahead with it. Probably the most ironic thing was that volunteer militia from Tennessee came over the Appalachian Mountains in winter to join the American forces so that that gives you some idea of how far from Florida the news of Noonan's battle had gone uh, that you know that that in Tennessee they were actually raising troops to go to come down to Florida and to join the the mission that was going to go back uh, into alachua so ultimately this next military force headed towards Alachua, and this time there were 225 U.S. troops who were rendezvousing with another 225 to 250 militia troops, so they had a force of 500, double the size of the most number of warriors that the Alachua Seminole community could possibly muster. So, um, so in practical terms, it was an overwhelming force. That one actually did not result in any major battle. The uh, Seminole leadership in the area knew that such a force was heading their way. King Payne had been mortally wounded during the engagement with Noonan. He, he died a few days later on. Uh, his near-kin, Boleg, uh, took over leadership of the Alachua Seminole, and Boleg made the decision not to oppose this force. Instead, he withdrew all of his people. They abandoned their town and their agricultural lands and their cattle herds uh, in Alachua, and they went west towards the Suwannee River so that so they would not have to confront this force that went in. So ultimately, the American expedition that went into Alachua in February of 1813 went in on a, on a search-and-destroy mission, uh, basically. They seized all the cattle. They burned the cornfields. They burned the town. Of Paynestown. They came across a couple of small hamlets in which there were runaway slaves or black maroons still living who had not accompanied the larger community west uh, and they took them prisoner and after four or five days in the area having seized everything they could seize they then turned around and went back towards northeast florida now i do have to say you know you were asking about sort of similarities between noonan's uh, raid and the dade battle this second expedition is very similar if people read accounts of the first Seminole war under andrew jackson the first Seminole war was very very much like this. The second expedition actually kind of set the stage for, you know, what future conflicts were going to be like in 1813, 1814 with the Creek War and then in 1817, 1818 18 with
0: the First Seminole War. The nuance was lost on the American people that the American presence in Florida was illegal.
1: Yeah, diplomatically, it was certainly illegal, and initially, it was uh, it was an an incursion that was not actually approved by the administration of President Madison, but which came to be approved. <laughs> Uh, it was, I mean, this was kind of a, it was kind of a situation where President Madison was presented with a fait accompli in Florida that American troops had moved across the border and taken up station there. And although there was initial consideration of withdrawing the troops and trying to smooth things over with this government of Spain, very soon after this had happened, war broke out between the United States and Britain in the War of 1812. And from that point on, there was kind of a military requirement, necessity of trying to hold position on that southern border, that Georgia-Florida border, because you know in the initial months of the War of 1812, things were not going well in Canada and uh, for the Americans, a lot of the United States, and so President Madison was very hesitant to uh, have to confront some sort of major military force on the southern border as well. It was initially illegal. It was initially something that the American government was going to retract on, but the War of 1812 changed those circumstances. It kind of, in some ways, legitimized the military occupation because of the danger that might be posed to the Georgia-Alabama territory or Mississippi territory lines if there was no American strength on that southern border.
0: So what was the outcome
1: of this so-called Patriot War? Who won? Yet no one won. Very destructive war. I think I characterize it, and this is pretty much true, every rural landholding, plantation, farmstead, anything like that, between the St. Mary's River, which is the Florida-Georgia border, and modern-day Volusia County, New Smyrna, south of Daytona, everything got either looted or burned during the course of 13 months the cattle were driven off or taken for provisions or simply killed american troops uh, suffered a great deal mostly from hunger and disease but also from being in a war zone st augustine was under siege for much of the time very low on food people streaming in from the countryside Kind of crammed into the town and when it was all over the you know a lot of people went out to find that they were living in a devastated landscape no food production for a year and a half so there were no crops no commercial crops a lot of the a lot of the rural housing destroyed the temporary beneficiaries were probably the rural slave population uh, because many of them managed to escape from captivity in all the confusion of the war. And others actually joined up with the Seminole. The Seminole would raid the plantations, and and the, the families in the slave quarters would go off with the Seminole. And many of them probably, ironically, ended up over in the Big Bend area, where, of course, you know, a few years later, they were right in the middle of the Creek War, and also the First Seminole War. And for a while, Spanish settlers and the Spanish government you know, could count it as a victory, but only a victory because they survived, and they, and they were left in possession of the ground. It was a really uh, devastating and economically crippling sort of uh, of combat, and uh, not unlike other theaters of the war of 1812. If you if you look at what was happening up along the New York-Canadian border and around the Grand, uh, the Great Lakes, uh, it was the same sort of thing. A lot of burning of uh, rural properties and rural plantations, and uh, a lot of people turned into refugees. The Creek War was also like that. I mean, you know, the Creek War. Uh, was essentially won by going in and burning out major creek um, uh, creek towns and uh, destroying, uh, you know, crops and things to uh, force the Red Stick Creek into a position where they simply couldn't continue to fight anymore. So the whole era of 1812 was one that uh, that caused a great deal of suffering. And you know, most people say the War of 1812 didn't really have a winner or a loser and didn't really resolve anything. And, you know, the little Patriot War going on in, in Florida was sort of like that, too.
0: What were near-term effects and long-term effects on the Seminole of this Patriot War? Well,
1: the nearest term effect uh,
0: was uh, they lost their homeland in
1: Alachua County, but they preserved their community. And Bullets, you know, did, you know, move west and reestablish uh, the community on the Suwannee River. Probably the second near-term effect, as I said, was that it brought the Seminole to the attention of American citizens and residents along the southern borders uh, in the Mississippi Territory, in Georgia. As I said, even in Tennessee, people suddenly became aware of who the Seminole were and where they were. And so it did become the first of a whole series of conflicts that was going to characterize the relationship between indigenous peoples and American landholders for the next 50, 60 years.
0: And in some ways led to the Negro Fort and the First Seminole War?
1: There were definitely connections. I don't know if people know about the so-called Negro Fort, but that fort was actually established by the British, again, during the War of 1812 on the Appalachian River at Prospect Bluff. It was initially supposed to be a stronghold for Creek allies and for runaway slaves who fled to the British lines. Uh, The British were going to turn that group into a fighting force to, uh, to move against the American South. That military attempt was essentially sort of taken off the table by Andrew Jackson. The defeat of the Creek Red Sticks in the Creek War, that was a factor in it. The later push by Jackson to force the British to leave the Panhandle area was another factor. Uh, but the fort remained up on Prospect Bluff, and it eventually became a community, a fairly large community, of runaway slaves and Maroons. Uh, more than 300 people there, I think. Ironically, uh, said so there was a connection, many of the people many of the uh, black men and women who went to that fort were probably former slaves who had you know liberated themselves during the patriot war and gotten free of their plantations on the east side of florida and ended up on the west side of florida and also you know a lot of the a lot of the slaves who ended up with Bolex community well they ended up at Bolex town on the Suwannee, which again you know survived for a number of years but ultimately was a, was one of the targets of Andrew Jackson's forces during the First Seminole War. So yeah, there were a lot of there's there's a lot of continuity, a lot of of, of connections for people who you know were in one of these conflicts and and eventually found themselves in in yet
0: another, one, in a different location. And coming out of that, the Seminole had to relocate again.
1: When you look at the expedition that went into Alachua, and when you also look at the First Seminole War, they're very different in scale. First Seminole War is a much bigger engagement, involves many more people. But they're very similar in in kind of the way things progressed during them. In, in the case of Alachua, as I said, Olex made the decision to sacrifice defending the land in order to preserve the people and move west. and the American expedition became largely a search and destroy, kind of scorched earth mission of just eliminating any possibility that the Seminole could easily reoccupy that area. The first Seminole War, almost the same thing. You know, Andrew Jackson goes into that area, I think with a force of about 1,500 men and 1,800 Creek uh, allies. Um, that force is vastly larger than anything that the Seminole at Lake Miccosukee, or the Seminole at Bullockstown, can oppose. And they don't attempt to oppose it, for the most part. If you look at the engagement that occurred during the First Seminole War, the Seminole are mostly fighting rear guard actions. They're mostly just trying to slow the advance of Jackson down to give all the non-combatants a chance to get away. Um, And that's what happens at Lake Miccosukee, and that's what happens later on at Bolix. So the two situations are very similar. And one of the reasons they're similar, I think, is because in both those areas, the Seminoles were very well established. Right? They had they had towns that had been in existence for decades, or in the case of uh, Lake Miccosukee, for centuries. Um, these were well-known places surrounded by cattle and agricultural fields on well-marked trails, which unfortunately made them very vulnerable to a military expedition. The expedition into Alachua reached Alachua very quickly and left very quickly. Jackson moved through the area of of St. Mark's in a matter of weeks. I mean, he was not in that area very long. He he, He moved his troops through there very quickly. And the net result of it was that they destroyed the settlements there. The people themselves retreated to other areas. One of the reasons I think that's important is because I think by the time you get to the Second Seminole War, Seminole leadership realized during the Second Seminole War that they could not fight a war or hold their own um, if they were going to try and defend towns and agricultural fields that were um, easily approached. They had already seen what had happened in the two former cases uh, when the American military um, moved against them. And that may have influenced the strategy of the Second Seminole War, which was that the Seminole kept themselves in places that were very difficult to get at, and they remained fairly mobile. And as a result, they were able to hold their own for a period of seven years against American military forces. I think that's something that could be looked at, or could be considered, too, when you look at the evolution of you know, how the Seminole were dealing with the world around them is uh, a very uh, clear perception of what had happened in 1817 and 18, and, you know, by the 1830s, I think they knew that they were going to have to adopt a very different way of combating forces that were coming against
0: them in order to wear them down or to, um, or to hold out. Where do we see signs of the Patriot War in the landscape today, in Florida or in Georgia? Well, there's not a lot of signs of it. Lake Noonan, of course, is still there, and it's still in a very
1: rural area. The principal uh, little communities in that section of Alachua County are Rochelle and Windsor, always been small. I think that there's a historic marker near Rochelle, uh, which is actually dedicated to the history of Rochelle, but it opens up, its opening statements are about Noonan's raid in that area. And then I also think that there's a marker over near Windsor, which is close to the area where Daniel Noonan made his first stand,
0: behind the, behind the first breastwork. That is a marker from the Daughters of the American Revolution, in fact.
1: Yes, yeah, it's interesting and probably closely related to you know, Noonan's own personal history. Years ago, the archivist, Jim Powell, in Alachua County, sent me a copy of a map the Windsor area uh, that showed where Noonan's breastwork had been. Uh, But it's on private property out there on farmland. So I've never actually um, sought permission to let go and cross over the land and see what remains of it. But at one time, apparently, could still tell from impressions in the ground and things that there had been a, a, a small breastwork readout there um, beyond that you know uh, there's the town of Noonan in, uh, in Georgia is named after Dan and Noonan Noonansville which is uh, kind of a ghost town now in Florida was named after him Noonansville was originally the county seat for Alachua County, but in the 1850s, the county seat moved to Gainesville, which had the railroad. Noonansville is still there with a historic marker, but uh, it's now on the outskirts of Alachua, uh, which is another small community um, in Alachua County. And then there have been archaeological surveys uh, done to locate Paynestown. and the location of Paynestown is known now, um, uh, and there's been some preliminary excavation there, enough I think, to determine that that particular site was burned, you know, what we know historically about Paynestown. So that's also been verified.
0: Jim, why should Noonan's Raid and its after effects be better known to Floridians specifically and Americans in general?
1: Well, I th- I think for Floridians it's an important part of the 19th century history of Florida, and it's a key part to understanding and I hope appreciating the tremendous challenges and, and also the tremendous obstacles that the Seminole and also the Miccosukee of Florida have had to overcome through the past two centuries. um, uh, I think that's probably the most important part of the story, which is uh, to realize that uh, um, the Seminole tribe of Florida and the Miccosukee tribe of Florida have maintained themselves in the state and have protected themselves and have uh, achieved um, the society and culture that they have today through more than 150 years of Intense struggle and actually armed combat. Modern Floridians should have an should I think, have a greater appreciation for the fact that uh, as indigenous peoples of Florida, they deserve a lot of respect and certainly have a claim to uh, being Floridians. That almost superior to anybody else's claim probably because of the, what they had to go through to maintain their identity and their culture.
0: The Seminole weren't going out looking for trouble but this seems to be the beginning part of where trouble came looking for them that maybe has not really stopped up to the present day. How do you feel about that?
1: I haven't really been into the area of where the Miccosukee tribe lives so much. I've been down to Big Cyprus and other Seminole communities many times and uh seminal culture micosukee culture are both extraordinary cultures and we i mean you know and floridians should feel lucky to have such a vibrant native american culture as part of their state but i do think that to some extent we also have an um, an obligation to educate our 20 million residents now in where Florida came from, where modern Florida came from, and of the significance of of many of the different populations that we that we have in the state. We, we don't do a good job of teaching state history uh, in the state of Florida. One consequence of that, it makes a lot of our history invisible when it shouldn't be. What else have you written about the Seminole or the Seminole Wars? I did a uh, article, a book chapter about... Uh, about Payne, the leader of the Alachua Seminole, and that's kind of why I know a little bit about what his, his policy was during the early 1800s. Uh, and then Sherry Johnson, professor of Latin America and Colonial America at FIU and I um, edited a book on Andrew Jackson in Florida, was a reader that consisted of previously published articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly and then some new essays written by Jackson Scholars and of course you know a, a significant portion of that deals with Jackson in the first Seminole War you know we also we also deal with his with his time as governor as well in that book so that's what that's primarily what I've worked on that's related to seminal history and to the history of the Seminole Wars. I've kind of moved into a different area now. I'm working on a book now which is actually going to be about crime investigation in colonial Florida. Um, uh, it, do, it does have a seminal link to it because I have a case where a convict in, uh, in St. Augustine uh, kills a Seminole warrior and wounds another one. The governor um, has to move very quickly uh, to apprehend the convict and to try him uh, because this killing took place at a time when Seminole, again, many of the Alachua Seminole were congregating near Seminole in this part of a, of a, of a, a, a talk with the governor that was going to occur. And he had to hold various meetings with the kin. Of the slain man and the wounded man, who of course wanted to know what the retribution was, you know, what the justice was going to be against the the convict who had committed the killing. So, uh, kind of an, an an interesting court case because um, of its direct involvement with a, a crime against uh, a Native American. Those are the things that I'm largely working on, and uh, I. Try and keep up. With, you know all the new work that's coming out uh, on uh, both the Seminole Wars and the history and culture of the Seminoles. Uh, I was I was I was fortunate a couple years ago to be editor, guest editor, of the Florida Historical Quarterly. And Patsy West submitted her um, article-length biography of uh, of Sam Jones. Or a, I hope that we're going to see a book-length biography soon because his history and story is just. You know, completely fascinating. And besides that, she's dug out references to him, and uh, you know, uh, memoirs about him, and uh, recollect people's recollections of him um, from all over the place. So that she really has great material for writing his life. And the, the article, the article, wonderfully written. But, but I do remember that to have to to, to get it to fit into that issue of the quarterly, I had to cut it in about in half. So, so there was a lot more material uh, than what actually made it into the quarterly. She single-handedly, I think, brought him from being a shadowy figure that everybody knows about but nobody knows any particulars about to really, um, you know, writing. Uh, uh, a full-fledged biography where we where we where we know his, his upbringing, who he was closest to, and where he was, uh, you know, through you know his
0: long life, you know, uh, and uh, the role he played in the Second Seminole War. It's a really good piece. Jim Kusick, thank you so much for being with us on the Seminole Wars.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate uh, being invited and having a chance to talk about all these things, and
0: uh, so thank you very much. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted The Seminole Wars Podcast 2020, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by Kind Permission of Rudy Onman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman, all rights reserved.